excited to jump into the church service. These folks were up here playing this morning. Some of you got an email from me. Um, so you'll know what I'm talking about later when you check that. Um, but anyhow, so I was just, uh, it's just great to be here. Great to be back with you. Um, all right, moving right along. So we are, we're in a series that we've been, and Kenny picked up for me last week. I really appreciate him sharing uh, last week on the parable of the pearl of great price and the hidden treasure. Um, he did such a great job um, and taking those students down to Daytona and giving them great leadership and leading them toward the Lord closer and closer every week. So it's great. I appreciate him jumping in there in my absence. Uh, we've been in this series on the parables um, of Jesus, and this week we come to the parables of the wheat and the tares. Uh, before I get into this, just real quickly, want to give you a, a, just a little bit of uh, background to this. So there were some expectations that the Jewish people had for when the Messiah would come. And we talked about this when, back in the Isaiah series. I've, I've, if you recall some of that, if you want to go back and listen to some of that. But anyhow, when the, when the Messiah came, their anticipation was that the world would be fundamentally changed. That when the Messiah came, all of creation, lions would be laying down with calves and uh, you know, wolves would lay down with the lambs and none of them would eat one another and little kids could walk over to the hole of the snake and they could play with the snake and all these sorts of things. And so they were anticipating creation itself to be fundamentally changed. They were also expecting that Messiah would put all the governments of the world upon his shoulder and that he would bring peace, he would bring the shalom of God to all of creation and, to all of, and the reign of God, the rule of God would come over the whole earth and that this messiah would rule from jerusalem so again in their minds when jesus starts talking about the kingdom of god and we're going to see this here in just a little bit this parable today as well as all these parables here in matthew chapter 13 are what are called the kingdom parables jesus is teaching about the kingdom of god and he's tweaking he's altering some of the expectations that the disciples particularly have with regard to this kingdom um, our text for today comes from Matthew chapter 13. This is the parable of the wheat and the tares, or the wheat and the weeds, depending on what translation you're reading from. Matthew chapter 13, I'm going to ask if you would to stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. We'll be reading verses 40, I believe, 40 through 43. Here we go. This is, the, and this is the interpretation that Jesus gives of this parable. Here we go, starting at verse 41. Yep. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. And throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. You may be seated. Thank you so much. All right, so what I want to do is I want to go back to the parable that Jesus actually taught. And then we'll come forward to his interpretation there of that parable. So we're going to start at verse 24, Matthew 13 and verse 24. He put another parable before them saying, now remember Jesus is talking to the crowds. Um, by the way, the, the, the fast talker guy is back. Um, Jesus is talking to the crowds, and this is the second parable that he's going to teach to the crowds. The first was the parable of the sower. Now he's teaching the parable of the wheat and the tares. The next couple parables that issue out are ones that he just tells to the disciples. So there's kind of a, a demarcation line in the timeline of this particular day um, here. But this is one for the crowds. He said he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to. And then he gives this parable. Notice here at the beginning of this parable that Jesus includes the line, kingdom of heaven. I shared with you a couple of weeks ago that a lot of these, in Matthew's gospel in particular, when he's referring to the kingdom of heaven, that phrase is synonymous with what Mark and Luke used to call the kingdom of God. So kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, doesn't matter which of the gospels you're reading from, they're all talking about the same concept. This idea of when the Messiah comes and the reign and the rulership of God from Jerusalem and the fundamental changes to 
creation. So uh, you can just use those two phrases interchangeably. So when Jesus opens up with these words, Matthew chapter 24, the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God may be compared to, that again tells us that this is a parable about that future reign of God. Jesus says, verse 24, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, verse 25. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat. In the ancient Near East, they had a plant that was called a darnel plant. I've got a little sketch picture of it for you here. The green plant is the darnel weed, and the wheat plant is the more golden stalk that you see there. And these are both fully ripe. They're ready to release their grain heads, if you would. And they're virtually indistinguishable as these two plants are growing up. And so if somebody sows darnel seeds, these weeds, in the middle of the wheat, it's very difficult to tell that they're there until they, until they become fully mature, which is why Jesus says in verse 26, So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared. It was then that the servants recognized, Hey, look, we've got a problem. Well, you say, well, what's the big deal about having Darnell? Why don't you just go out there and just pull the weeds out of the ground? I mean, why does it even matter that the Darnell are growing in the middle of all of this wheat? Weeds grow in the middle of crops all the time. Why not just deal with that? What's the big deal? Well, if, if the Darnell seed gets confused with the wheat seed at harvest time, the Darnell grain heads can make a person very sick. They can make a person feel drunk. They can make them feel like they're, they're like sick to their stomach. They can make them feel slurred of speech. Um, there's also a fungus that grows inside of the grain heads or in that cluster of grain heads for the Darnell uh, plant, and it can cause a certain... Uh, uh, what do you call it? central nervous system issues if it's consumed in quantity. So the basic point is you don't want this Darnell weed growing right in the middle of your primary food source. And that's what in this scenario we've got um, happening here. Um, again, the Romans, I'll add, the Romans had a law on the books prohibiting someone from doing what this enemy of the sower did. In order to get revenge on some farmer or some local landowner, a person would go out probably under the cover of darkness and they would take these Darnell seeds and they would just broadcast them. They would um, out in the middle of the wheat seeds where the wheat seeds had been planted and basically they're just ruining the harvest or they're making it very difficult to um, to reap this harvest so when jesus shares the story of how a guy goes into a darnell goes out into a field and sows darnell seeds among the wheat seeds that's something that jesus audience would have been like yeah i remember so and so went down to farmer ben's field and he did that to him and that fellow's sitting in jail now because he had done that so what does the farmer do how does he handle the situation verse 28 the servants asked, do you want us to go and gather up the Darnell? That is, do you want for us to go out there and pull these weeds out of the ground? Well, there's a problem with that. Remember, these are fully mature plants. They both put out their grain heads. They've gotten to that point of maturity of growth. You start pulling those Darnell seeds or Darnell weeds out, and the, 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 most likely the roots have intermingled with one another, and you're going to be pulling the weed up along with the weeds. So here's what you're going to do, verse 30. Here's the plan of action. Let's let both of them grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers to gather the weeds first and then bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, before we get to Jesus' explanation, I just want to point out, if you look over at verse 37, that Jesus says later in his interpretation that the field itself represents, in his story, that the field represents the world. That's the word that he uses, the world. He doesn't say, some commentators believe that the field represents the church, and so I'll talk about that here in just a little bit. But um, in verse 38, he says the field is the world. Um, he doesn't say the field is the church. Just hang on to that piece of information. We'll get to that in a little bit. 
Um, so this is not a parable about the church. Instead, this is a parable, verse 38. The field is the world, he says. He goes on to say that the good seed, the wheat in the story, are the sons of the kingdom, that is Christians, that weeds are the sons of the evil one, and that would be non-believers. So uh, Jesus is getting into his, uh, his interpretation here of that story. This guy goes out, he sows these Darnell seeds in the middle of all the wheat, and so he's trying to um, wreak havoc for, for the harvesters. Um, and then Jesus is giving this interpretation. He says that, hey, look, the field itself represents the world. Uh, the seeds that are sown that are good, the wheat seeds represent the believers, the Christians. He says the Darnell seeds represent the evildoers. Uh, the, he calls them the sons of the evil one, verse 39. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. Now, the next statement is the key statement in Jesus' interpretation because it establishes when these things are going to happen. He's actually thinking in his mind about a time frame of events. Remember, the disciples are anticipating this great fundamental change of creation. All the governments of the world will rest upon the Messiah's shoulder. Well, when is this going to happen? And so Jesus is answering their question to that regard here in verse 39. He says in verse 39 that the harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are the angels. Let's take a few moments to unpack that phrase, the end of the age. It's a, it's a phrase that appears all through the um, Gospels. The Gospel writers all mention this, the end of the age, the end of the age. Um, I've got a timeline for you here. This shows a biblical view of human history. It's something perhaps you've seen before. I know I've shared with, with you before. He said it starts, human history starts at creation, um, and then the fall takes place, and then it tracks along through the Old Testament period of human history, and that is referred to in by scriptures as the age of the law or the time period in which the law that God gave, the laws of Moses that God gave, were guiding and directing God's people. But then you see a little overlap because there's the beginning of another, of another age, a second age, um, and this is referred to in scriptures as the age of the spirit or the church age. This is the age when the part of the Godhead, God the Holy Spirit, comes in and inhabits or dwells God's people. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and I believe it's verse 19 that says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? And Paul asked that question because apparently those folks, they didn't know that. And so he's sharing some information with them that, hey, look, the Holy Spirit is coming and dwelt inside of you. It used to be that God the Father dwelt inside the tabernacle. That's where he was on planet Earth. And then the Lord Jesus came and dwelt in human flesh, John chapter 1 and verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And now in this new age, the age of the Spirit, the church age that we live in now, the Holy Spirit of God dwells here on the planet inside of believers inside of you and I. Eventually, this timeline teaches that history will come to a close in an event referred to as the return of Christ. This is where Jesus will stand up from his throne in heaven, he'll return to the earth, and the dead in Christ will be raised in the, resur the resurrection of the dead, and final judgments will be issued for all of mankind. Again, that will close out human history. So human history begins at creation, it will close out at the return of Christ. Jesus says back there in verse 39 that the harvest, in his story, the harvest is the end of the age. The question for us is, which age is he referring to? Can we jump back to the timeline real quick? So you see the age of the law, the Old Testament age, and then you see this other age. Is he talking about the, end, the conclusion of the age of the law? Because that concluded right about the time of Jesus. Or is he talking about the end way off into the future? Well, in Jesus' interpretation, he gives us the clues as to the end of which age he's talking to or talking about. Um, so let's take a look at that. Look at verse 41. The Son of Man will send his angels, 
and they will gather out of my kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. Now, as I'm looking around the world, right, and we're flipping on the TV in the evenings, and we're seeing the causes of sin are still very much alive and well in the world today, we know that he's not talking then about the end of that Old Testament age, the end of the age of the law. Rather, he's talking about a forecasted time off in the future when everything will be fundamentally changed, where sinful nature will be taken from you and I, when, when, when the lawbreakers, those that are the unrighteous, those who are not under the blood of Christ, uh, will, be, um, will be judged. Verse 42, he says, And the reapers will throw them, that is sin itself, along with the lawbreakers, into the fiery furnace, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Friends, this is a clear reference to final judgment. Jesus, when he's talking about the end of the age here in this text, is referring to the end of time, to the end of human history. He's referring to the return of Christ. Like the writer of Revelation who said, Revelation 20, verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown in the lake of fire. This is a very similar reference uh, description to what Jesus is talking about here at the end of time. Last verse, verse 43, then the righteous, that is the wheat, the believers, will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. So he's describing your state and my state in this new age that he's referring to here after the return of Christ. It'll be a time when, again, um, when the sinful nature has left us, when we're in our perfected post-resurrection state. The question again, though, is which age is Jesus referring to? Well, I think the answer is obvious. He's referring to the end of the age of the Spirit, the end of the church age, the age that we're living in now. He's referring to the harvest that will come at the end of human history, at the end of time. Um, now, I shared with you some weeks ago that when we're dealing with these parables, we need to establish the main point. Because the main point should drive the meaning that we, that we land on. And the main point of this parable is Jesus trying to say to the disciples, look, there's going to be a delay in the consummation of the kingdom. Y'all think it's imminent. You think that Messiah is here. You believe that I'm the Messiah. And you believe that because the Messiah is here, that the governments are going to be rested on my shoulders like next week. Or, or, or maybe within the next six months. And Jesus is trying to say to them, look, there's actually going to be a period in which the Darnell... And the wheat, the non-believers and the believers, the righteous and the unrighteous, are going to grow together. And then eventually, the whole harvest will come at the end of the age, at the return of Christ. So he's trying to set them up to say, hey, look, guys, the time frame that you have in your mind is not as imminent as what's real, what's reality. All right, well, that's our treatment of this text for today. And so that means it's time for us to stop and ask the question that we ask every week around here. Did you miss it? What difference does all this make to my life? That's a really great question. Let's see if we can answer it. A couple of weeks ago, Claire and I flipped over and watched the movie Sully. I don't know if you all have ever seen the movie Sully before. I recommend it. It was a great movie. I'm going to ruin it for you if you haven't seen it. So um, give you kind of the storyline. The story of Sully is the story of Chelsea Sully Sullenberger, who safely landed U.S. Airways Flight 1549 in the Hudson River. I think it was back in 2011. Don't, don't quote me on that. But it was some years ago. Uh, safely landed that plane in the Hudson River, right in the middle, heart of New York City. I mean, right where everything's happening, they got ferry boats going back and forth, carrying people back and forth across the river, right where that plane landed. Um, remarkable uh, story. The plane took off from LaGuardia. It hit a flock of geese. The geese were sucked into both engines. Both engines, not just malfunctioned, but just completely uh, were, were rendered useless, and both engines shut down. 
Um, Sully could have tried. He had two options. Well, three options. Two, one option was to return to LaGuardia. To try, he had enough altitude, maybe around 2,000 feet or something like that. Um, and it was believed maybe he could have turned that plane around and gone back to LaGuardia. Or there was another airport in New Jersey that, that they were kind of trying to figure out maybe he should go there. And so he's processing all this. And he decided, I don't have time to get back to LaGuardia. I don't have time to get to New Jersey. What I got to do is I got a runway right out here in front of me, and I'm going for that runway. And so that's what he did. He landed that plane just brought it down, I guess, I don't know how he did that, but anyhow, he brought that plane down and landed it in the middle of the Hudson River. Um, 155 passengers, including crewmen on board, all 155, miraculously, were saved. Now, the movie covers what happened in the aftermath of that heroic water landing. Sully faces intense scrutiny by the National Board of Transportation Safety, uh, the TSA. And these folks treat him not as a hero, but they treat him as a person who used very poor judgment. They, they say, they contend that you should have known that you could have just turned that plane around immediately on the spot and head back to LaGuardia and things would have been okay. Um, and so they believe that he made a bad decision. They put a bunch of evidence together and they interview him and ask him a bunch of questions, kind of treat him like a hostile witness. Um, and so they use that data from a flight simulator as well to prove that it could have been done, that that plane could have returned to LaGuardia, or it even could have made it to New Jersey, to the airport in New Jersey, instead of trying to land it in the Hudson River. Finally, at the movie's conclusion, when it looks like Sully is going to lose his wings and the bad guys are going to bury him, Sully asks, how quickly did your flight simulator people make the decision to return to LaGuardia? And they said, immediately. He said, hold on a second. You mean they never took the time to assess what had happened? They never took the, a few seconds, 10 seconds, 30 seconds, took him about 60 seconds to try and restart the engines and, and, and figure out what is happening, what, can I, what do I have that I can work with. No, of course they didn't. Geese had hit the plane, they turned around, they were heading back to LaGuardia. He said, well, that's, the, why, that's why they were able to make it back, because you're, you're, you didn't consider the human factor of trying to think about and process and assess what had just happened and what are our options. He said, I went through all that. Your flight simulator people knew that it was geese that had hit it and our engines were down and they turned around and headed back. In fact, he goes on to ask them, how many times did the flight simulator people get to practice this before we got to see the live recording? Well, 17 times. Oh, well, that makes a big difference, doesn't it? Um, and so what is to say that the TSA folks, God bless their hearts, had rigged the results. They were willing to destroy a man's career. They were willing to turn a hero into a villain. And as it turns out, all for the sake of preventing an insurance company from being liable to have to pay for the plane that was sitting at the bottom of the Hudson River. Wow. The movie concludes with Sully being exonerated and the TSA folks having egg all over their face, but they still return to their desk jobs in Washington, D.C. I share this story because it demonstrates the injustices that exist in our world. There are weeds growing amongst the wheat. Jesus tells us with this parable in no uncertain terms that there will be a day of reckoning. A central point that Jesus is trying to make here with this parable. There will be a day of reckoning. A day when the lawbreakers of this world will be gathered and thrown into the fiery furnace. The disciples were thinking that that day was imminent. Jesus informs them it is, there's going to be a delay, folks. It's going to be a little while before that actually takes place and happens. But he assures them that day is coming. 
What does this mean for your life and mine? Well, first of all, it means that all the injustices of the world are going to be dealt with by the Lord Jesus himself. That is, no one is going to get away with anything. And so as Christians, we can take comfort in the fact that one day people who have wronged us, people who have mistreated us, people who have cheated us will have to answer for their actions and for their words. And they will be gathered up by the angels of God. Matthew 13 and verse 41. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. Verse 42. And throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The Apostle Paul who took Jesus at his word. The Apostle Paul who believed that Jesus was telling the truth when he made these predictions concludes on the matter, Romans chapter 12, verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Friends, when it comes to the injustices that have been done to us and to others, Jesus reminds his disciples that no one is going to get away with anything. In this world, the wheat is going to grow right alongside the darnel. But one day, when it's harvest time, the Darnell will have to answer for its crimes. If you're here today, and you've never put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, friends, I want to make clear that you are living in danger. You are living with the wrath of God ready to explode in your life. Um, God sees you as Darnell, growing in his field. And right now, as it stands, his angels of judgment are coming for you. But when we turn to the blood of Jesus shed on the cross, when we put our trust for eternity, not in our good works, not in our pristine driving record, but in the finished work of Jesus on the cross, friends, suddenly, in an instant, we are transformed from being the subject of God's wrath to suddenly being his children, to suddenly being the wheat that's growing in the field, the righteous that will shine on into eternity. And so I implore you today to turn to the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, to invite him into your life, to come to the waters of baptism as an outward sign of that newfound faith that you have in him. Please do not wait. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Something for you to think about. Number two, uh, and this will be my final point. The second difference that this makes to your life and to mine, the first is that there will be a day of reckoning. The second has to do with properly handling the word of truth. I was really surprised. I spent the week and I got to the guys' uh, breakfast on Thursday and was kind of sharing about this with them uh, two weeks ago. And I said to the guys, I said, you know, it's, I was really surprised as I was reading through the commentaries how many of the commentators who are like tremendous Bible scholars, many of them I, I use their books because I trust in what they have to say. And, and I, I look to them for wisdom. I look to them as people who have just spent their lives you know, studying God's word. And I was surprised at how many of the commentators insisted that the field in the story that Jesus tells is actually the church. Remember what it said in the text, Matthew chapter 13 to verse 37? Jesus said, I think 37 or 38, it said, maybe it was 38. He says, the field is the what? This is his interpretation. You know, one of our rules for interpretation, I think it was rule number two, maybe three, I think it was two, is that if Jesus gives us the interpretation of the parable, then we don't need to do any more work. We got it, right? Jesus told us what this means. We go with what Jesus said this means. And so um, on this, but it was just odd to me that some of the commentators insisted, no, 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 the field is actually 
the church. Um, and so what they were trying to do was they're trying to say, hey, look, inside the church, there's going to be wheat and there's going to be darnel. There's going to be wheat and there's going to be weeds. And so there'll be, there'll be people who are authentic believers and there'll be people who are um, imposters. Uh, there'll be people who are genuine in their faith, who are genuine in their repentance. And then there'll be people who are, you know, they're just on the membership rolls at the church and they just going through the motions. And, and one day they'll say to Jesus, you know, hey, Lord. And Jesus will say to them, I, I, don't, I don't know you. Now, while there are plenty of places in Scripture where that sort of concept is taught, this is not one of them. Jesus clearly says the field is the world. He's not trying to create a scenario to deal with uh, the church. Jesus interprets the parable for us. And in his interpretation, he says, the field is the world, in verse 38. Um, there's a Greek word that translates world. It's the word cosmos. Um, it's where we get our word cosmos from. Uh, there's also a Greek word that translates church, and it's the word ekklesia. And Jesus used that word ekklesia over in Matthew chapter 16 when he was talking to Peter. Peter gives the great confession of faith. Jesus says to Peter, Matthew 16 and verse 18, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my ecclesia, my church. Jesus knew the two words. He wasn't confused about what I was meant. I said world, but I really meant the church. Ah, he knew exactly what word he was using. Again, back to Matthew 13 and verse 38. He says, the field is the cosmos. The field is the world. Those are two completely different concepts, cosmos and ecclesia, uh, world and church. There's no way to confuse one over the other. May I say... Maybe this is just me on my little high horse here. Okay. It is egregious to suggest that the field is the church, especially when Jesus says the field is the world. Um, again, we had some rules for interpreting parables. Number two said that Jesus interprets a parable for us. Look, we just go with what Jesus had to say. We don't try and tweak what he had to say. We don't try and alter what he had to say. We don't try and quantify or qualify what it was that Jesus had to say. We just go with what he said. So that got me wondering, well, why are these commentators doing this? Why are they being so insistent in saying that the field is the church and wanting to scrutinize things? Um, well, I, you know, I read, I've read a lot of commentaries over the years. <laughs> and one of the trends that I really have, and one of the trends I have discovered in all my years of study, I mean, 30 plus years of study, I, I have, one of the trends I've discovered is that some of the commentators, some of the people who are writing these things, are, uh, have a... Um, a propensity, if you would, um, toward impugning the people of God. I, I don't know what it is. It's just something inside of them. It's a predisposition, perhaps, that they have. That anytime they have a chance to, right? Church, it's like they want to do it, and they want to do it with their words in the books. Um, and so they seize on those opportunities. It seems as though these commentators are skilled at preaching at God's people rather than building them up. It's like they want to create separate categories of Christians, those whose lives outwardly pretty much look to be in line with Scripture, and then a separate category for those whose lives outwardly have a bit more work to do. Friends, that's what the Pharisees did. They would take the parable of the sower, and they would say, you know, I'm really glad I'm not that thorny soil. I'm really glad I'm not that soil that gets choked out by the world's concerns and the world's cares. Wasn't the disciples that said to Jesus, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who came up to Jesus and said, when you come into your kingdom, when you're sitting on the throne, I want to sit on your left and I want to sit on your right. 
Why? Because they wanted to be vice president and prime minister. That's what they were asking for. These are two guys who had spent like a year or more seeing the miracles of Jesus, hearing the parables of Jesus, hearing the teaching of Jesus, seeing the heart of Jesus. And what did they conclude? I want to be status. Wow. There's some thorny soil. I, you know, I don't, the, the Pharisees say, well, I don't want to be that rocky soil. You know, that when the difficulties of the world come and the roots aren't real deep, that they just tend, tend to wither and drive away when persecution shows up. Well, wasn't it the disciples who were hiding behind closed doors while their Savior, while their Lord was hanging on the cross in his most desperate moments? I mean, where were they when persecution was happening? You see, these parables are not designed for us to hold up to other people. These parables are designed for us to go, wow, I see myself, Lord, the way you see me. Here's my point. When we start using the parables to point out the problems of other people, we have missed the point of the parable. So let me close with just a couple questions, and we're finished. What encouragement do you need from God today? What forgiveness do you need to petition God for? What wisdom, what discernment do you need God to provide? Jesus said, he who has ears, let him hear. Friends, Jesus is speaking to you. Let he who has ears, let him hear. Let's pray. Most gracious God, we thank you again for a chance to hear your truth spoken into our fragile state. Lord, you want to shore us up. You want us to become more than we ever dreamed we could be. All that, though, has to happen at your feet. And so, Master Teacher, we come before you. Messiah, Savior, we bend our knees at your presence. We petition you, Lord, in these quiet moments of communion even, to say, God, there's stuff going on in my life. God, there's direction that I need. God, there's encouragement that you know my heart longs for. Lord, give us ears to hear. For you are speaking. We commit this time to you. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.